Uh, it is an honor to be back here. Um, you know, what, what Pastor Chris just shared, uh, many of you know, and, and you probably don't quite understand the full context of, of what Liberty Heights means to me, because when I got here, uh, I was just hopeful to love ministry again. That's something that sometimes happens when someone invests many years in, in church ministry and then feels like, gosh, this is just a, a rough environment. Um, and, and so there was a, a season in my life that, life ha- that, that uh, Liberty Heights was just the perfect fit for me. Um, Pastor Brad described me almost as a wounded puppy when I showed up uh, because of some of the things that I'd been through, um, but working alongside him and Pastor Chris and David and Michael and Eber and so many others um, was just a, an incredible season of, of healing and growth for me, and so I'm forever grateful for this church. Um, as, as Pastor Chris said, I'm at Lifehouse Church now, and we've seen God do some amazing things there in the last eight months. We've gained about 100 people and, uh, and have seen about 50 people pursue membership with the church. Yeah, that's wonderful. And it, and it has absolutely nothing to do with me. And that's exciting to me. That's exciting to me because uh, that means that it's not built on me and it doesn't rely on me. And I can step away for a Sunday or I could get hit by a bus and God's going to continue his work in Lebanon, Ohio. And so I'm just so grateful that the Lord has brought me there just to watch him work, uh, and, and also just so grateful for this church's investment in me and even sending of me over there. Well, this morning, I want to work through a couple of things that I think are really helpful, mainly because it's New Year's, and a lot of you guys, by the way, gosh, it's, it was hard to get up this morning. It, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. All I want to say is, if you want to know heartache, be an Oklahoma Sooners fan, okay? We never win, ever. And this year we lost seven games, so come on, guys. You have a great team. Uh, On New Year's, people start to write down their resolutions, or maybe if you're type A, you did it a week ago, and you've got all of these things. You you know exactly what your regimen is going to be to get back in shape for the first time in uh, 20 years, or uh, you know what your routine is going to be to study the Word of God this year, and and, and so I looked up what some of the resolutions that people choose are, and, and a couple of the top ones is that Christians want to draw near to God, that grow in their relationship with the Lord, and grow in their understanding of the Word. And I hope this morning that this is beneficial to you because a huge part of it is understanding how to interpret Scripture. And so we'll use one specific passage, but as I, as I get there, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 7, uh, as you turn there. Uh, Imagine that I walked up to you and asked for your phone and then began to scroll and picked some random message on your phone, just a random message, and then began to tell the whole room what I thought it meant. For example, maybe it says something like, I'll be there in seven minutes, or be there in seven minutes. Well, I could read that and go, Uh, maybe they're talking about, well, seven is the number of perfection and wholeness. So so I'll be there at the perfect time at God's appointed time. And where is there? Well, maybe they're talking about not just somewhere in this world, but, but somewhere in eternity. And I just go on this weird, rambling, incoherent idea. 
Well, you would probably look at me and, first of all, think that was the weirdest thing I've ever seen on this stage. But the second thing that you would think is that it would really, really help if I knew you, if I knew the author of that text. And it would really, really help if I read all of what surrounds that text. And if I knew the situation, if I knew what was going on in your life, maybe I could tell exactly what that means. Well, that's how interpreting scripture works as well. When we get to know the author of a book or we get to know the person that's talking or we, we get to know the entire book and not a single verse, then that's, that's called context. It's historical context, it's literary context, and it helps paint a clear picture of what God's word says to us and what it, what it ultimately means for us. See, it's dangerous when we grab onto a text like we're about to in Matthew chapter 7, and, and we ask the question, what does this mean to me? And so this morning, I want to help this text make sense to you. And I don't mean that I'm going to assign meaning to, meaning to it, but instead I want to uncover the meaning that is already there. And I want you to deeply feel and understand why it matters so much that we accurately understand what the Bible says. Because I remember, gosh, I was a youth pastor for so many years, I always thought it was strange when people got hung up on something meaning just a little bit different than how we always took it. People would say, you know, I, you've seen that Bible verse, here's what it really means. I was like, gosh, why does it, I, I remember thinking this, why does it really matter? Well, it matters because churches like Westboro Baptist can hold up a sign that says that God's word says something and have no idea what it means. It matters because Mormons in our community can read the same Bible that we do and have no idea what it means and see it through a distorted lens of Joseph Smith and the pearl of great price. It matters because if we're going to be equipped to impact a lost world, we have to understand what God's word says. And it's not open to interpretation. So we have to do the hard work of getting it right. Well, this week I want to look at a commonly quoted verse, and it's most commonly quoted, get this, by non-Christians. This is what it says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Maybe you've heard it. Judge not that you be not judged. I'm going to pray and we'll go home. No, I'm just kidding. I, I want us to encounter, as we dig through this text, three important truths that help us deal with the way, uh, or help us help shape the way that we deal with conflict in our lives. And so the very first thing that I want you to see as we dive into this is prepare for conflict. That's what this text is all about. It's about conflict resolution. It's about peacemaking. But I want to build the case that that's what it means. And I think maybe the most helpful way is to see what it doesn't mean. So, so does this verse really mean what the whole world outside of Bible-believing churches seems to think? That the worst thing you could ever do is tell somebody what's right for them or wrong for them. Well, to determine that, we have to not just ask, uh, not ask, what does it mean to me, but what did it mean to its original audience? This has been said from this stage so many times, and if you've been here for any length of time at all, you've heard Pastor Brad say it, or you've heard Pastor Michael say it at another campus, or Pastor David, or Pastor Chris Context is king. You would never grab uh, a book off the shelf and turn to page 100 and start reading from there and think that you're going to get something out of it. 
And yet we do that with the Bible every single time we open it. So how do we understand the Bible better? We read it. Write it down. Write it down. That is absolute gold. You're not going to believe this. When you read God's word, it begins to make more sense to you. So if you look at, if you show up to church and gosh, it makes you uncomfortable when Pastor Brad says, hey, turn to Romans because you have no idea where Romans is. Or turn to Matthew like I did today and you have no idea where Matthew is. Gosh, if, it would, if you would just get in the word, those things start to take care of themselves. I've heard it said before, don't read Bible verses, read Bible passages. Don't read Bible verses, read Bible chapters. Don't read Bible verses, read books of the Bible. And I promise you, you will start to see more clearly what God's word says and what it means. But in the meantime, if you want to understand this verse in Matthew, gosh, start by reading Matthew. And then begin to narrow your focus. I've heard it said biblical interpretation is, is a lot like when you throw a rock in a pond. Maybe you were trying to skip it and you're just not good at skipping. But you throw it in the pond and there's ripples, right? You see the ripples and, and you can follow the ripples from the outside to the inside to see exactly where that rock hit. If you want to understand Matthew 7, 1, read Matthew. And then read the Sermon on the Mount, which is what's going on. It's, it's the greater picture of what this verse is all about. And then you can ask, and this is something that Pastor Brad taught me. Um, I, I, I saw it a little bit in seminary, but it was in leadership academy. Ask the W questions. Who, what, when, where, why? I'm so used to saying how there because of my English teacher, but who, what, when, where, and why? Who is talking? Well, Jesus is the one talking in Matthew 7. What's he doing? He's preaching. Who is he preaching to? Uh, where, where is he preaching? He's on a mountain in Galilee, and he's preaching to a crowd that's gathered that, that would have been a heavily Jewish culture. So people who have been influenced by Jewish culture or even Pharisees, but also his disciples. And why? Well, there's this rhythm in the New Testament that we talked about in a series here a uh, little over a year ago through the book of Acts called the movement. It's this, this rhythm in the New Testament of wonder and word. That God does something amazing, and then one of God's people, in this case it's Jesus, proclaims a message. So sometimes you see in the New Testament that there's a mass healing or mass, mass exorcisms or, or Jesus feeds a lot of people, and what comes after that is teaching. Why? Because it gathers people up. But the goal is not just, the goal is not just to give a solution to somebody, it's salvation. It's, it's when you do the wonders, for example, it, when you see it in the New Testament, it's not just about physically healing somebody, that the ultimate part of the message is that hearts should be changed. Wonders gather crowds, the word grows a church. So wonders may change you physically, but God's word changes you personally. It changes your heart. And Jesus is, is kicking that off, and then simultaneously he's, he's telling them that God's economy is different than the world's economy. This is what we see in the Sermon on the Mount. He begins chapter 5 by saying, blessed are the poor. Gosh, they don't sound blessed. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. 
Blessed are the meek and the merciful and the peacemakers. All of these that society would say, those people aren't blessed and God has a different economy. And then he goes into this speech. This is all the Sermon on the Mount. This is just for the sake of context. Then he goes into the rest of chapter 5. Is, You've heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said, do not murder. I say anyone who hates his brother has already committed murder in his own heart. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. I say that whoever looks at someone with lust has committed adultery in his heart. Jesus is turning it up a notch. He's not just saying that the world's economy is different than God's economy, though he very much says that. He's making it clear that everything they think they know is just a misunderstanding about the relationship between man and God. By the time we get through chapter 5, we have a clear understanding that Jesus is different than other teachers. He teaches with a different authority and a different set of standards. He makes it clear that it's not just what you do, it's why you do it. It's what you think. It's who you are that matters. Well, in chapter 6, he, he turns everybody's pers uh, perspective to an eternal one, and then we dive into chapter 7, and it's a difficult verse. Judge not that you be not judged. So does this verse mean that we should never care about the actions or beliefs of another person? Does this verse mean that if somebody in your life is living total, totally recklessly, that you just need to mind your own? Well, gosh, that would mean that a lot of Paul's letters in the New Testament need to be thrown out. Because in 1 Corinthians, Paul is dealing with sexual immorality in the church, and he's addressing it head on. In Titus, he's dealing with gossip and how it stirs up division among believers. Have you ever seen it? Have you ever experienced that? I've heard it said that people cannot repeat what you do not say. Food for thought. In Ephesians, he commands them to be unified and stop being so wrathful and vengeful and petty. In Galatians, he, he chastises a church that he dearly loves and warns them not to fall for false teaching and not to fall for false teachers. So is correction violating God's law? Absolutely not. This is the rhythm, actually, of how God meets us and invites us into himself. Correction is itself an invitation into following Jesus. That the warnings of God are a welcome into his presence. That when he calls people out, it's a call to come closer. Look at chapter 7, starting with verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Here Jesus is telling, he's actually telling the audience 
that you should be able to look at a person, observe the way that they live and talk and act and interact, and identify whether they know God or not. And by every worldly definition, that is called judging. That's judging to our culture, and yet Proverbs 27, 6, it says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. That love should compel us to step into the fray, to step into difficult conversations. We'll talk about how, but, but before we even get there, some of you are feeling emboldened right now. That when I say love should compel you to have difficult conversations, you're like, that's what I've been saying to everybody. And the truth is, gosh, if, if you're ready to dive headlong into conflict, you probably shouldn't. Someone else probably should, but you probably shouldn't. We believe that the Bible is inerrant, infallible, and authoritative, that it does not contradict itself and so when I give all of this context all of this scripture that helps us make sense of what this verse does not mean then that should help us make sense of what it does that this verse cannot fly in the face of everything else we've read about faithful correction about love that compels us to step in and so let's keep following the ripples inward let me give you a couple of I think helpful guides or tips for interpreting scripture faithfully. This one's very, very important. It's actually just the only one I'll give. Let the clear interpret the confusing. Let the clear interpret the confusing. When you get to a text and you're like, I have no idea what this means, but I think it's about this topic, then gosh, look up a hundred other verses about that topic. And I promise you it will start to help you shape your view of that text. Uh, if you have a good study Bible, you can open your Bible, and, and at the bottom, there's something called cross-references, which means you should be able to find a certain verse in a certain chapter and go to the bottom, and it will tell you other texts that are about the same thing. And it will help you start to get a better picture of what this verse means. So what do the verses right after verse 1 show us? That this is in the midst of conflict and disagreement. Jesus is doing two things here. He's warning the crowd that those who are eager to pass judgment on others, that God will hold them accountable by the same standard they are judging others. Yikes. But he's also teaching them how to navigate conflict and be peacemakers. Friends, you might not know this, but if you're above the age of four, you do know this. Conflict in life is inevitable. It is inevitable. Even among believers, it is inevitable. Why? Because you're a sinful person dealing with other sinful people in a broken world that has been fractured by sin. Conflict is inevitable. And if, if you don't know that yet, try going on a mission trip with other God-fearing believers who love Jesus and want to take his name to the end of the world, and there's still conflict on that trip. I've never been on a mission trip that lacked conflict entirely. And you might say, I, I've been on a mission trip and I had no problems with anyone. That's because they all had problems with you. <laughs> Yet God does not leave us to go it 
alone. He indwells us. He empowers us. He emboldens us. And his word informs us how to faithfully and lovingly step into the fray and have difficult conversations. So we live in a live and let live culture that says, you take your hands off of everything about my life. I should be able to live and you should never say a word. And that is not what love motivates us to do. Author Ken Sandy says that each person has a natural lean toward one of three dispositions in conflict. There are peacemakers, peace fakers, and peace breakers. Peace fakers are those who are in the midst of conflict but pretend everything is great. But pretending conflict doesn't exist is pretending to have good relationships with people. Author Paul Tripp points out that failing to step into the fray and have difficult conversations isn't because you love the other person, it's because you love yourself too much. Peace breakers are those who are ready to go. The moment conflict arises, they'll say what they think needs to be said, they'll set someone straight. I've heard people uh, almost act like this is a good thing. In churches especially, it's like, you know me, I'll tell you how it is. This is what it says in James 1, 19 and 20. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. This might surprise some of you. I remember it surprised me the first time I heard it because it was said to me as correction to me. Not everyone needs to hear your opinion about everything. I've heard it said, and this is what was said to me, if you have an opinion about everything, people will listen to your opinion on nothing. Your words have lost their weight. If you're ready to speak up and give everybody your thoughts on everything to do with sports and politics and the climate in the direction of the country, and you're a financial expert all of a sudden, like, if, if that's you, and you always offer it freely, people tuned you out a long time ago. But then there's this biblical model. Peacemakers. Peacemakers, not peace fakers, not peace breakers, peacemakers. Gosh, even that word should show us that this is hard work. That this is not the natural disposition of a sinful and broken human heart. That this is not what we are built to do when we are reveling in our sin. That peacemakers are those that Jesus calls blessed as children of God in Matthew chapter 5. But it's hard work. You don't sit in neutral and naturally make peace with others. So that's point two. Do the hard work of peacemaking. Author Ken Sandy writes these four G's of peacemaking, and he says it consists of these four steps. They all start with G. Glorify God. Genuinely love the other person. Get the log out of your own eye. And gently reconcile. Go and gently reconcile. Glorify God. We'll start with that one. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, it says this. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Conflict is not exempt from this. If you can eat and drink for the glory of God, then you can deal with hard things for the glory of God too. You can give a, a Godward orientation to conflict. 
that it's not exempt from giving glory to God. It's aimed at God's glory. Genuinely love the other person. This one's so important. And, and speaking of correction, in 2 Thessalonians 3, Paul says, Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Ephesians 4 says to be kind and tenderhearted. Philippians 2 tells us to value others as more important than ourselves. And Jesus makes this clear at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? In other words, Jesus is making this really clear, that when, when we're dealing with conflict, we need to love the other person and genuinely love them. These are actually the first two principles of living the Christian life. Jesus was pressured into giving the two greatest commandments, or the greatest commandments in general, and he gave these two. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That we should live in such a way that our desire is to glorify God and have a good relationship with other people. Love God love others. How can the whole law be summarized in those two things? When Jesus was asked that, it was supposed to be a trick question. Pick one law and then we'll forget about the rest. And Jesus said, no, it can be summed up in these two things. Love God, love others. Why? Well, because when we love God, when we love God, we're not going to chase after other idols. We're not going to take his name in vain. We're not going to have other gods before him. When we love others, you're not going to believe this. We won't murder them. We won't steal from them. We won't commit adultery or covet what they have. When we love God and love others, it takes care of the whole thing. When we step into the fray of conflict, we must seek to love others and love God. Well, this is a grace and truth approach. But loving others does not mean that you shy away from difficult conversations. Gosh, not that long ago, I watched my little daughter that, um, uh, that we have this weird kind of banister in our house that's pretty high. A lot of you guys would have something similar. Um, but I, I watched her uh, hike her leg over the railing of this 15-foot high rail. And she is not four feet tall yet. So she would have gone over the whole thing. Her, her desire, by the way, was to climb over it and hold on to the outside of it. About 15 feet in the air, she would have fallen like a raindrop and gone splat. I watched that leg go over the rail and I immediately yell out her name, Anna Claire! She pulls that leg back, lowers her head, starts crying and runs into her room. It was just like a sitcom. Sad, kind of funny, but sad. But that's my job as a dad, to warn her to guard her. Love and truth are not in opposition. They're in unity. But make no mistake, people can tell if you actually love them. Saying, or starting by saying, you know I love you, isn't really the point. People can tell if you have genuine affection for them. And if you don't genuinely love the person, you're not the one that God's putting to correct them. Point three, this is the last point, which I'm sure you're happy about because 
pretty tired today. Point three, take ownership. This is how I would summarize those final steps of those four G's of peacemaking. So glorify God. That was the first thing. Genuinely love the other person. That was the second thing. But then here it is. Get the log out of your own eye. You're going to see how this is drawn from the text today because I'm going to read the full text now, verses 1 through 5 of chapter 7. It says this. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you seek or why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will clearly see the speck in your brother's eye. Jesus knows his audience. He knows that he's dealing with people who who are so used to the culture that he's correcting, the Jewish culture, the Pharisees. And he's drawing from his experience in carpentry. We know Jesus was a carpenter. His father was a carpenter. And if any of you guys have ever gotten a saw, electric or otherwise, and cut wood, you know that it's very, very important that you wear protective eyewear. And if you don't know that, you will probably learn it the hard way. There was one point in a remodel in my house when I was working with brick, and I I bumped the brick into something, and what felt like an entire brick landed in my eye. And I think it was a whole brick because it hurt so bad I couldn't stand it. And I usually pride myself on being moderately, um, I I wouldn't want to say tough, but I just have a High pain tolerance. I, I always told my wife, gosh, if someone stabbed me in the leg, I think I wouldn't notice it till I'm showering that night. Like, I just thought that about myself. And then I got something in my eye, and I realized I'm a total baby. I went there, and you know what I found out? It was just a speck. Just a little speck. Now, it had scraped the fire out of my eye, but it was just a little speck. Jesus here is speaking in a hyperbole. He knows that a little speck is a big deal. But if you've ever had something in your eye, imagine that, and then your, your little girl comes and says, could you braid my hair? It's like, first of all, I don't know how to braid, but second of all, all I can think about is the speck in my eye because when you start to realize, so, so what Jesus is not saying is, he's not saying a speck is not a big deal. He's saying, no, 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 you need to begin to view your sin as even bigger, even more consuming than that speck. You have a log in your eye. And in fact, he says that the log in your own eye blinds you so much that you cannot even help the other person. Have you ever noticed, and it might not be you personally, but you've probably noticed this, that in a season of sin, people are just naturally less gentle, less patient, and less kind. That the further someone strays from the Lord, they're going to react and interact in a totally different, ungodly way. And the longer it goes, the more bitter they are. Seasons of sin will always make us less patient, less kind, less gentle because we lack intimacy with God. And that always leads, a lack of intimacy with God always leads to a lack of intimacy with others. The best father you could ever be is when you're clinging closely 
to God. When you're pursuing Jesus with all you have, the best mother you could ever be is when you're running after Jesus and spending time daily in prayer and in the word. The best friend, the best son, the best daughter, the best coworker you could ever be is when you're running the race with endurance, fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. That is the best version of you, without a doubt. And when you're pressing into God and living faithfully and passionately for him, you will always be a better father, husband, brother, sister, wife, mother, friend, coworker. But hidden and unrepentant sin will always make you a lesser husband, father, sister, brother, wife, mom. So what is this all about? It's not just about owning your sin first. It's about owning your part in a conflict. Earlier in the Sermon on the Mount... Matthew chapter 5, 23, Jesus is speaking about being angry with someone, and he calls his listeners to go and be made right with others. He says this, therefore, if you bring your gift, this is 5, 23, and 24, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there you remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Hear me, church, broken relationships will always hinder your intimacy with the Lord. It goes both ways. When you lack intimacy with the Lord, you will not be the best husband you can be. When you lack intimacy with others, you will not be the best follower of Jesus you can be. So if you're here today, and you need to be made right with somebody, you can be, but you have to do your part. Peacemaking is hard work. In our text today, Jesus isn't just saying that you are most at fault. He's saying that you must treat it like you are most at fault. I had a situation uh, really right before I came here where somebody, I have very few, by the way, transparently, all cards on the table, I have very few relationships that I can confidently look at and say, I was selfless in that relationship. Gosh, with my wife, I'm selfish all the time. With my Children, I'm, spe- I'm selfish all the time with my parents and my brothers and sisters, with my coworkers. Very rarely are my motives pure, but I could look back at a relationship that's totally broken in my life and go, I don't know what I did. And I had this, this moment where by every rational account, I knew they are mostly to blame. But then I read these texts and it compels me to go and be made right with somebody else. When I know someone has something against me, even if I don't feel like I did the thing wrong, but if you step into a situation and you believe that that person is the only one at fault, good luck at reconciliation. Reconciliation is never found by the person who goes, you've got all the apologizing to do. This church hurt me and they better start getting on their knees and apologizing to me. My wife hurt me, and she better, she better do all the work. And I'm just going to stand here, and I'm just going to accept it. That's not where reconciliation is found. Own your part. So what did God compel me to do in that situation? Well, I at least, at minimum, knew that my reaction to that other person sitting against me was incredibly sinful. That gave me the entryway to get a hold of them and apologize for my role in that. To view my sin as bigger than their sin was the main catalyst 
and compelling me to go and be reconciled. Even if all rational people in your life say you're not at fault, you'll never find reconciliation if you believe that. So what happens if you've owned your part and you've sought to glorify God and you've sought to genuinely love that other person and you've sought to get the log out of your own eye and you've even sought to go and gently reconcile and they rebuff all of your efforts, what then? This is what Luke chapter 6 says and we're closing here. Luke chapter 6 verse 27 and 28, it says, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who mistreat you. So we can trust that we've done our part when we're seeking to glorify God and loving the other person well and owning our part of the sin and pursuing reconciliation, but beyond that, we can also love them regardless, do good to them regardless, bless them going above and beyond to meet them where they are regardless and praying for them even if they mistreat us. Beyond that, we can trust that God is doing something. That God is going to bring something out of your Christ-driven efforts at reconciliation. How do we know that? Because, gosh, that's what God does. He fixes things that nobody else can fix. And so you might be sitting here going, what, what do I do? Because I've got this completely broken relationship with my son. Well, besides those steps that I've walked through, I want you to, to have hope today that God calls you as a believer, a minister of reconciliation. This is what it says. Well, this isn't the text that says it, but, but it talks about it. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. But then it says... Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and who has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Gosh, it was the right text. That is that God uh, was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him, gosh, this is good news, who knew no sin to be sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God. Goodness gracious, church, if we love people well. If we meet people where they are, if we if we begin to view our sin as the greater offense and we pursue reconciliation, it might not work out, but your heart should clamor for the possibility that they could be reconciled to God because that is the ministry that God has given you. And anything that stands in the way, any amount of pride in you, any amount of hurt in you is, is sinful if it's going to keep you from taking the gospel to that person so that they could be reconciled to a God who can change their heart. Because your words aren't going to change their heart. My words aren't going to change their heart. But goodness, if God gets a hold of them. Our passion is that others might be reconciled to God. It's the gospel at work in us that enables us to forgive. One final thing. I remember standing up. Uh, so so I, I went to a church camp and uh, led worship there, and 
one of the things that I remember is the, the pastor for the camp was just talking to everybody about, about what we need to confess to the group when we go back in the cabin. You know, kind of classic youth minister, write it down, burn it in the trash can type thing. And, um, and I remember, though, realizing I'm about to stand in front of a bunch of students and play worship. And the truth is, the truth is deep down in my heart that I hated my sister. I don't mean some sister out, out there like we say brother and sister in Christ. I mean my blood sister. I, I hated her. I had so much bitterness in me for the path that she chose to walk and all the hurt that she brought into my family, the way that she chose drugs over her children that, that my parents had to adopt. I, I watched their health deteriorate because they're now taking care of babies in their 50s and 60s. In 70s, I had so much bitterness inside of me, and I confessed to this youth group of young people that probably had no idea what I, what I was talking about, that I hated my sister, and I repented of it, and I wanted God to fix it. And you know what God did? He met me there. And in a way I can only explain as the Holy Spirit doing it, he began to give me a love for her almost instantaneously. Not because she came and got on her knees and begged my forgiveness, not because she ever sought anyone's forgiveness, but because that's what God does to us and that's what he can do to others. You want intimate relationships in your life? Pursue intimacy with Jesus. Let 2023, how weird that is to say, be a reminder that if you are a grace receiver in Christ Jesus, you ought to be the greatest grace extender. May you identify relationships in your life where you can extend grace that you have not extended, where, where God can give you a love for that person that you do not have today, but you're praying you have it tomorrow, and that God can use the means by which we are reconciled to others to bring wholeness to that relationship, and, and then you can come back to the altar and seek the Lord. Lord, we love you. And more than anything, God, we want what you want for our lives. It is so difficult to have broken relationships. It is so difficult in this season to walk into a family gathering and have 100 unspoken, peace-faking things going on behind the scenes. But God, you are a God of redemption and reconciliation. And though your greatest desire is that we would be reconciled to you through the blood of Jesus, Lord, you also deeply desire that we would prioritize reconciliation with others. And so, Lord, today there are people here who, who know you and have totally broken relationships. Would you meet them where they are? There are people here today that, that need to go confess and repent to somebody in order to pursue reconciliation. God, may you remind them that in this situation, they ought to view their sin as the log and the other person's as the speck. God, bring reconciliation to our broken relationships so that the gospel can go forth. And we'll thank you for what you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen.